I want you to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. As you know, if you are with us regularly, we are in the midst of a verse-by-verse study of the book of Proverbs. It was amazing, after the conference with T4G, I was invited by Mark Dever to attend another sort of two-and-a-half-day retreat for the rest of Thursday, all day Friday, and for about a half a day, three-quarters of a day on Saturday. Uh, A retreat with about 50 pastors, uh, not only from around this country, but even some uh, international pastors, to be able to debrief not only about the conference, but ways that we as these 50 pastors could help Nine Marks Ministries be more effective, to talk about what's occurring in evangelicalism, to talk about preaching, to talk about the church. Uh, It was a wonderful time. It was about an hour away from Louisville on the Indiana uh, state side, and uh, we had a great time. I met a number of uh, men that I've talked to on the phone through a Nine Marks teleconference call that I have once a month, but it was great to be able to put a name to a face. And one of the things that they asked us to do when we were introducing ourselves to one another, because this was uh, sort of the first of its kind, where after the T4G conferences, if tradition holds true, we might be able to do this in years to come. And so each of these pastors were given the opportunity to to introduce themselves, to say where they were from, uh, their wife, their children, things like that, their ministry, and what they're preaching on now. And so we went around the room, and as each man mentioned what he was preaching on, all of the heads were fixed on me when I said, I'm preaching verse by verse through the book of Proverbs. And every one of them, almost in unison, said, What did you do beginning in chapter 10? Because if you know anything about the book of Proverbs, you can easily preach verse by verse through chapters 1 through 9. But usually pastors at chapter 10 verse 1 through the rest of the book sort of uh, break it off either into some kind of topical study or they actually don't preach it at all because it doesn't in their minds seem to lend itself to verse by verse exposition. And so they looked at me incredulously and said, wait a minute, are you saying you've preached through every verse of the Proverbs all the way to chapter 30? And I said, yes. And they said, have you cleared out the place? And I said, no, we've had a wonderful time. And I told them a few examples of how you can structure the book in such a way that it doesn't seem as though it's random, where you're just sort of picking up one proverb after another with no cohesion, no continuity. And uh, they were... They were amazed, and in fact, for several of the breakfasts and lunch times that we had, they said, "Uh, hey, could I get with you, and could we have lunch together, because I want to hear how you're approaching that, because that may be something I want to do with our congregation. So that was wonderful. We had the opportunity to tell them about what we're experiencing as a church, and uh, apparently it's not that common. And so uh, you and I have been uniquely blessed, I think, to sit under the Word of God as the book of Proverbs has been opened up to us. And if you look at Proverbs chapter 30, as you know, we're in a section in which we're talking about wisdom. And when Agur, the author of this portion of Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is talking to us about two kinds of wisdom. He's talking about the wisdom of man, and he's talking about the wisdom of God. And when he begins, as you remember from last time, Augur begins to tell us in biographical fashion what it is that has been his journey with 
the particularity of pursuing by his own wisdom the knowledge of God. And as you were with us, I told you from Proverbs 30 verses 1 to 4 that that's a futile search for God if you're trying to ascertain the knowledge of God purely through human reasoning. In fact, look at Proverbs 30 verses 1 to 4. The words of Agur, the son of Yake, the oracle. The man, that's Agur, declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eucal, and this is what he says. This is his human reasoning about whether or not he could come to a place of, of discovering God, of knowing God. Surely, verse 2, he says, I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. In other words, in biographical fashion, Augur is asking the question, can I know God apart from divine revelation? Can I know Him? Can I know about Him? Well, we know, first of all, that Romans 1 says there is a faint understanding of God. We know that. Romans 1 tells us that there is within the heart of man a basic understanding that there is a creator in the world. We know that. And Augur says, but is there anything else that I can know about this creator God? Can I know him intimately? Can I know His words? Can I know His works? Can I know His person? Can I know His character? And His self-attesting answer is this. Absolutely not. I can't know Him. That's why He says in verse 2, Surely I am more stupid than any man. And I do not have the understanding of a man. You remember, I said to you that in this biographical sketch, this autobiographical sketch of Agur, he says this, when it comes to knowing intimacy with God, when it comes to knowing God truly, truthfully, knowing His ways, knowing His patterns, knowing His plan for me, knowing His will, I am more stupid than any man. I don't have the knowledge that I need because with human reasoning, working my way through, trying to understand this God who is the creator of the universe, verse 3 he says, I have never learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. I'm a brute. I'm, a, I'm an unreasoning animal. I don't know what I should know. I've neither learned wisdom, I don't have the knowledge of God, it is futile. And you remember, that was our first outline point. The futility of Augur's wisdom. He's a brute, he doesn't understand that there is no way of knowing God apart from the divine revelation of God Himself. And he's admitting it. He's saying... I've tried to come to know God through my own lens of life, through my own facility to know Him and to understand Him, and it is futile. I can't do it. Sounds like the preacher in Ecclesiastes. I thought I could experience all of life, and I have, 
I've experienced it all. I've done everything. I've pursued all kinds of wisdom, all kinds of knowledge. I have reams of data. I have myriads of information. And what I've come to realize is that in reality, as far as God is concerned, I am far from Him. I don't know what I need to know. Yes, I know there's a Creator, but that's about all I know. He has some invisible attributes, to be sure, but I can't know Him fully. I can't know Him completely. I can't know Him in terms of His will for my life, apart from Him showing Himself to me. I've neither learned wisdom nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. In fact, that was, that was the second of our outline points, the failure of all human wisdom. He widens it even, according to verse 4, to the failure of all human wisdom. You remember those questions that he gave us in verse 4? Look at them with me. Verse 4. Agra says, Who, who pray tell, who of a human being, who in the capacity of being a man has ascended into heaven and descended? Tell me who he is. I want to know who he is. I want to know among the homo sapiens of this created order who could ascend into heaven and come back and give us some kind of knowledge from above. Who can carry, as it were, wisdom from above and bring it down to us on the earth so that we might know this God? Who can carry it down from us, for us? Who is it? I'd like to meet him. Second question. Who has gathered the wind in his fists Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? In other words, can any man control the wind and the waves? If there's a man who can do that, I'd like to know him. I'd like to meet him. If there is some kind of human reasoning, human wisdom, human ingenuity, human ability to know God the God who controls the wind and the waves, and if he supposes that he's like that God, if he thinks that he can be the purveyor of information like this creator God of the universe, I must know him. Is there any man like that? And of course the answer to that rhetorical question is no. Not on your life. Absolutely not. Third question. Who has established all the ends of the earth? In other words, man presumes that he can create things on the earth. And surely there seems to be those who believe that they can do so. They can take their little hammer and their chisel and they can create on the earth. We can create buildings. We can create skyscrapers. We can create technology in such a way that we are thinking pretty good about ourselves We're pretty sophisticated, we're pretty savvy, we think we've got it together. And God looks down on us and laughs because we have no knowledge about Him through our own efforts. Can't do it. No amount of human reasoning, no amount of human ingenuity allows us to be the person who is the answer to this question. Who's established all the ends of the earth? You might be able to construct something on the earth, but you can't construct the earth. That's his point. And he finally says, what is his name? Or his son's name? Surely you know. Tell me who he is. If he's a man, if he's like me, then I'm going to tell you 
that just like me, he's a brute. He's an unreasoning animal. He's more stupid than any man, just like me. Because he can't know God apart from God revealing himself to us. Surely you know him. If you know him, tell me his name. I want to sit at his feet. Is it Plato? Is it Socrates? Is it some man today who is perceived as the wisest man on the earth? Is it Solomon? What's his name? I'd I'd like to know who he is. Because if, in fact, there is a man like that, the man who has ascended into heaven and descended, the man who's gathered the wind in his fist, he's wrapped the waters in a cloud and allows that cloud to burst forth water wherever he wishes. He's established all the ends of the earth. I know his name. I know all about him. If he's around, he's the one we go to. He's the philosopher of choice. He's the one we ought to pursue. He's the one who has all of the wisdom and all of the treasuring of knowledge that we must have to navigate successfully in this life. Tell me his name. And you remember last time I told you that that mere human being, that sinful man, doesn't exist. But there is a man who did exist. His name is Jesus Christ. And he fulfills all of those qualifications. When Augur says, surely you know, our response as Christians is, yes, surely we do know. It's Jesus. He's the one who has fulfilled every one of those things. And apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ, we don't have wisdom. We don't know wisdom. We can't pursue wisdom. We don't know what it is. We don't know the first thing about the baby steps of living life skillfully to the glory of God unless we have God revealing Himself to us and He does reveal Himself to us in the person of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Nazarene. And when He is revealed to us, when we are sitting at His feet, the greatest philosopher of all time, we then learn who God is. You remember with Jesus telling His disciples when they keep saying, uh, is, is, is God going to reveal Himself to us? Are we going to know the Father? Show us the Father. It will be good for us. And Jesus says to these dumb disciples, how long have I been with you? Maybe their proper response should be, I am more stupid than any man. I don't know apart from God revealing Himself in Jesus who you are. But if you do reveal yourself to me in Jesus, then I know everything. I know more than all my teachers because I know Christ. I know the very wisdom of the knowledge of God. I know the Holy One. I have learned wisdom if I learn Christ because Christ is the epitome of wisdom. He's the apex of knowledge. In Him are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Learn at the feet of Jesus. You remember in the first part of the book of Acts when these disciples, after this sitting under the ministry of Jesus and now being empowered by the Holy Spirit, just as we read earlier in our Scripture reading in Acts chapter 2, and they're turning Jerusalem upside down, and it says from the religious leaders, the legal forces of the day, they were exasperated, they didn't know what to do, and they said about this band of brothers, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The power, my friends, in knowing God is knowing Christ, for Christ is God. 
He's revealed God to us. Now, how does He do it? How is God revealed to us? You say, through Jesus. Well, I've never personally seen Jesus with my own eyes. So how does that occur? Well, what is the, what is the immediate force for this revelation? Well, it's Jesus, but it's through the Word of God. That's, that's the reality of how we know God. It's through the Word of God. And that's our third outline point. Our third outline point for this little two-week series of messages on Proverbs 30 is this. We can actually know God only through divine revelation. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Proverbs 30. That's where we left off last time. I'll read it again just to set the context. Verses 1 to 6. The words of Agur, the son of Yaqeh, the oracle, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eucal, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man, neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Here are those questions. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. And here's Augur's answer. After the futility of his own search for godly wisdom and after the failure of all human wisdom that he pursued, he gives you his own answer. And here it is, by divine revelation, what we would call special revelation, the Word of God. Here's his answer. Surely you know, here it is, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or He will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. This is the ultimate answer to the question. Don't you hate it when you have people who ask questions and never give you the answer? Here's Augur's answer. I mean, when you're talking about futility, the futility of pursuing your own wisdom, your own course in life, and how many people have you met who think they're on the right path, that they're on the right journey to find it, finding out all of the right answers of life, and yet who don't even themselves, because they're blind to it, understand the futility of their own human search for wisdom, for the knowledge of God, for all that life needs to offer to us. They don't understand it. They don't have that knowledge. And Agra says, I was on the same search, and I've come to realize that it is for us, according to Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, the special revelation of the Word of the living God. That's how you know God. That's how you know Him. It's not a vision. It's not a mystical experience. It's not anything like that at all. It is as a result of knowing the Word of God. That's, that's its function for our lives. Notice that third outline point, the function of God's Word. What does Augur say? Here it is, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Now this is great, I love this. Augur, no doubt, was familiar with King David's writings. You say, how so? 
This particular phrase in verse 5, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him, was taken by Agur from King David's own mouth. Look at Psalm 18. Psalm 18. This is, this is amazing. He must have meditated on this psalm, which reproduces, by the way, or reinforces the very idea of what I'm talking about when I say that the Word of God is God's special revelation to us, far beyond the general revelation of just knowing that there is a Creator, we can actually know Him intimately, and we do so by the Word of God. And Agur says, I'm going to take another portion of God's Word, and I'm going to place it right here as my answer to the question. Because this is almost synonymously stated. Look at Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God... His way is blameless. And then notice this, almost the same, very same phrase of Proverbs 30 verse 5. The word of the Lord is tried or tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Verse 31, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Did you notice that phrase there in verse 30? The word of the Lord is tried or tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Agur just lifts that right out of David's psalm, David's song. And he says, I couldn't state it any better. I think I'll use that. That's his answer. In fact, look even at the historical record. Look at 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22. Again, lifted right from this historical section about David. This is, this is the history of David being delivered. The psalm is a celebration of it, and Agur is affirming it. 2 Samuel 22, look at verse 29. And I love this. This is talking about the Word of God. This is talking about Agur answering the question about how do you know God? And his answer is by divine revelation. 2 Samuel 22, verse 29. For you are my lamp, O Lord. Does that sound like the psalmist in Psalm 119? The Word of God is a what? A lamp to my feet. You are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. How does He illumine my darkness? He illumines my darkness by giving me His Word. Verse 30, For by you I can run upon a troop, by my God I can leap over a wall. Verse 31, As for God, His way is blameless. Here it is again, The Word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Agur is saying the same thing about David, which has also been affirmed by David in Psalm 18. The function of God's Word is that it proves itself time and time and time again to be trustworthy. How so? Because it's tested. It's tested over and over and over again, and it can be always and forever relied upon. His Word can be trusted. You see it in the first part of verse 5 of Proverbs 30. Every word of God is tested. Have you ever had anyone test your words? 
I mean, when someone examines exactly what you have said, and you say, I believe that. I think that occurred. I was an eyewitness to the fact. And if someone were to analyze your words, videotape, audio tape, CD, DVD, MP3, if they were able to take your eyewitness account and you said, this happened, this was done, he said, she did, could those words be proven infallibly tested truthfully? You're probably pretty nervous right now, aren't you? So am I. Because if someone were to say about me, I want to test your words. I want to try your words, your eyewitness account. I want to be able to prove whether or not it happened exactly the way you said it happened. And I don't just want to do it once. I want to do it throughout the course of your entire life. Would it be true that someone could say about Lance Quinn or about you that your word is tested, your word is tried, and it is found utterly and inescapably trustworthy. Now, my friends, that's a level of scrutiny that is far beyond us, is it not? Far beyond us. It's almost as though Agur is saying this. You want to know God? Try His word. Test it. Test Him to see whether His word is truthful, that it can be relied upon, that it's trustworthy. Try Him. Go ahead. He speaks truth and nothing but the truth. Try Him out. Learn of Him. Seek Him. He will not let you down. And I love this testing idea. It's from the metallurgy of the ancient world. It's the idea of the refiner's fire. We've talked about it before. It's the, it's the blacksmith. It's the person who is able, the refiner, to take God's words, place them in the refiner's fire and he turns up the heat, and he turns it up to the hottest kind of testing that could be done possibly on the earth, and what comes out is absolute, pure, divine gold. You say, I want to see some proof of that. Look at Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs 2. Oh yes, God's Word can be absolutely trusted. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is sort of, again, that, that metallurgical example, that metaphor of being tried. It comes forth as gold. It's like silver. It's worth its weight in gold, we would say. Here's the Word of God. Here's the wisdom of God. Proverbs 2, verse 3. For, for if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. That's the wisdom of God. Wisdom is mentioned specifically in verse 2. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover what? The knowledge of God. You want to really know God? You have to know His Word. You have to be intimate with His Word. And when you know His Word, you have it as pure gold. It's been tested. It's been tried. Look at chapter 3 of Proverbs, verse 13. How blessed, how enviably blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Why? For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing, nothing in this world you desire compares with her, the wisdom of the Word of the living God. You say, but how much? How much trying is going on? How much testing? Look at Psalm 12. 
How much testing is really happening here? I mean, is it just a once-over lightly examination of whether or not God can be trusted? That His Word is true? I mean, you heard even the testimonies at the 9 o'clock hour. And you heard all of these searches for the truth, both inside and outside the church. You heard all of these meanderings, these journeyings to find out what's true. Who is true? What can I rely upon? What can I bank my whole life on? Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are what? Pure words. How much trying is going on? How much testing? How much metallurgy? As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined how many times? Seven times. I mean, after seven times, it's, there, there, there's no impurities. There's nothing at all. It's just, it's what it is. I mean, hotter than hot could possibly be on the earth, and His Word is pure. It's tried in a furnace as often or as much as you'd like, and what happens comes out pure. Look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I'm just arming you with giving you this grocery list of verses so that you can write them down so that when you're in a funk spiritually, when you're wondering whether or not God can be trusted, when you are saying to yourself, I have read your word, but I doubt. I doubt that you can take care of me. I doubt that your word is true. What I, what I see with my naked eyes does not lend itself for me to believe that you can be trusted God says otherwise. Look at Psalm 19, the latter part of verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, which is just another way of talking about the Word of God, is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are comprehensively righteous. Verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is what? Great reward. You think about God's word like that. Is that is that the place that you go when you're in a trial in life? Do you automatically go to God's word? Is that the first place you go? Or do you go to a friend? It's not wrong in and of itself, but where's the first place you go? Do, do, you, do you do what the psalmist does in Psalm 119, verse 140? Is that what you do? Is that your attitude toward the Word of God? This is, this is what the psalmist says in verse 140 of Psalm 119. Your Word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. Do you love God's Word? Is it your meditation all the day? Is it your guide to life? Must you have God's Word ever before you in your mind? Isaiah 40 verse 8 says it this way. Isaiah 40 verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Everything else is going to fade, my friends. Every other truth source, supposedly, every other piece of wisdom, every other pursuit, every journey, 
Everything that's tied to this world is going to fade. Flower fades, grass withers, but the Word of God abides forever. Look at chapter 55 of Isaiah. Very familiar words to you. This is what God's Word says about itself. This is the function of God's Word. His Word can be trusted. Chapter 55, you know it well. Look at verse 8. For my thoughts, that's just another way of talking about God's Word to us, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. What a powerful affirmation of the Word of God. Is that your meditation? Is that where you go for counsel? Psalm 119 verse 24, your words are my delight, they are my counselors. God's Word can be trusted. As a Christian, can you say that today? You might have been going through a very, very dark time. And I know, for a fact, some of you are. Where do you turn? To whom do you turn? Because not only can His Word be trusted, notice also His person can be trusted. Not just some kind of... uh, sense of an inanimate word that you may think His Word is, just words on a page, but also His very person, His character. Look at the latter part of Proverbs 30, verse 5. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. He's your shield. Therefore, the Word of God is your shield, right? He'll take care of you, believer. He will take care of you. Do you believe that? Do you live in light of that? Not just His Word, something that I can pick up and read, something that I can know, something that I can say to myself, well, I'll read some verses today to see whether or not it will help me. Sort of like a a verse a day keeps the devil away, right? Instead, saying to yourself, His Word is my lamp. It's the lamp to my feet. It's the light to my path. God's Word is going to be forever my guide. And His person, His character, His faithfulness will be my shield what it says. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Not only can His Word be trusted, but His person can be trusted as well. His very character. He's not going to err. His Word is true. It can be trusted. You know, like a warrior protects his people from those who would war against him, so the Lord protects His godly ones. You and I, you and I have no clue how Often, in fact, every minute of the day, we're protected. I remember this week talking with Pastor Todd, who told me of a. We were driving to Louisville, and all of a sudden, on the left hand side of, of this major highway that we were traveling between Nashville and Louisville, we began to see these cars back up, didn't we? And we just kept watching all of the cars on the other side of the highway stack up, stack up, stack up. And then I called my wife, and she said she'd heard on somebody's Facebook that it was a 25-mile-long stoppage on the highway. Can you imagine 25 miles of traffic coming to an absolute standstill? 
And that reminded Pastor Todd of an incident where he was aware that there was a horrific accident that occurred on a very, very uh, troubling part of a highway in which they were traveling on a vacation. And there was a time in which he said that when they got out to the car, ready to go, turned on the engine, nothing happened. It appeared as though the engine was completely dead. And they waited for just a few moments, and then his wife encouraged him to turn it on. He turned it on again. It came on. They went on their journey. But in that elapsed time of probably 30 seconds to a minute, they missed that horrific crash. Ask yourself the question, is that just coincidence? Fate? Luck? Chance? No, it's God's, God's shield. His protecting shield. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Look at Proverbs 2.7. Proverbs 2.7. Listen to this. Proverbs 2.7. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. God, the Lord, Yahweh God, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. Then this, He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. He's your shield when you walk in integrity. Look at chapter 14, verse 32. The wicked is thrust down, Proverbs 14, 32, by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Fear death? Not if you're a Christian. You have a refuge when you die. You just know that for you, this this concept of death will just be nothing more than a novel experience. You just go from... This life to the next. Because you have a refuge when you die. How about Psalm 3.3? You want to know that He's our refuge? Psalm 3.3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. He's a refuge. He lifts your head when you're in trouble. You can be protected by Him. Psalm 84.11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. You see your God as a shield? Protection against the enemy? Against the encroaching army? The spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places? He's your shield. He'll protect you. See, not only does His Word serve as our trust... But His person serves as our trust as well. This is the Word of God. We can can trust His Word. That's the function of it. You see, it's not just that we see this idea of the trustworthiness of the Word on a shelf. It works itself with legs on it to actually protect us and guide us in this world. There's a functional significance to the Word of God. It's, It's sufficient for us. In fact, that's the next point, the fourth and last this morning, the finality of God's Word. Look at verse 6 of Proverbs 30. Do not add to His words, or He will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Now those are somber words, my friend. Those are somber words. What's he saying? Don't forget the context. Remember? Augur is saying, I'm more stupid than any man. I don't have the knowledge of God. I don't have the knowledge of the Holy One. I, I need special revelation. I can't, I can't reason my way to God. 
On my own efforts, I've come to the absolute futility and failure as a man, as is all humanity, unless God intervenes and brings His Word to us, and He brought the Word of the living God, Jesus Himself, to us, and when He brought us Christ, and when the Word was inscripturated as the Word of God in our Bibles, we have this sure tested, tried word that will give us as a guide and protection everything that we need in this life. And when Augur says, I finally found it, the, the revelation of God that I need is not human reasoning, but it's the word of God. And I must give everybody a warning. Here's Augur's own testimony. I warn everyone. If you've found divine revelation, if you've been given special revelation, then don't add to it. You better not add to it. There better, there better not be any kind of co-mingling with the divine revelation and some kind of human reasoning so that I think I have the best of the best. God's Word is all you need. It's all you need. Here's His warning. This is, this is the command not to add to God's Word. Do not add to His words. It's a serious matter. Serious matter. We're, we're commanded not to add anything to God's words. When you add all the other places in the Bible where similar warnings are mentioned, and when these passages were first penned in the canon of Scripture, and when you add them all up, and now that Scripture is completely closed forever, all of these statements are, do not add to God's revelation. Augur says, I warn you, I warn you that if you try to add upon the complete and final revelation of God's words, you'll incur serious judgment. You say, well, how's that happening? Well, when's the last time you heard somebody say that they prophesied something that God told them? Or someone who believes that some other kind of human reasoning is on a par with Scripture? Or someone who purports that they've spent time with God, that they've gone to heaven, that they've come back to tell us what God is like. Or even somebody who says, well, my concept of God is... It's a serious matter not to add to God's Word. Not to add one jot, one tittle, one word, one letter, one idea, as though you could actually add to God's Word. Isn't that the height of arrogance? For somebody to assume that they can add to the Word of God? Well, I think I'll just polish it up a bit. I think I'll just sort of, uh, in an adjunct sort of way, uh, improve it a little bit. Uh, maybe we need to bring it out in another edition. I'm not sure I believe in all of the miracles of the Bible. Well, I'm not sure that my concept of God is quite like that. What I think is, and whatever they say next, don't believe it. Don't, be, don't add to God's words. You know that this is throughout our entire Bibles. You may not have seen this before, but look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. You may not have seen this, but this is amazing. The many times that this very concept of not adding to God's word is listed in our Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Now, O Israel, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel, now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments. Remember, that's God's Word, God's statutes, God's judgments, which I am teaching you to perform. That's from God's mouth 
to Moses' ears, through Moses' mouth, to the people, which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Now verse 2, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. There it is. Don't add to it, don't take away from it. Anybody who would assume that they would need to add to it or take away from it is in the height of arrogance. Affrontery. Look at chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 32. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Why the repeated commands? Why? Because that's our forever temptation. That's human reasoning. That's our pride. That's us wanting to say, I could do it better. I could say it better. I think there's a different way. Maybe there's another path. Look at chapter 13. Right, right after this verse. Chapter 12, verse 32. Right after he says that, here's the warning. Chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Isn't that interesting? God will even at times allow for words other than His words to go out of people's mouths to see if His own people will go after those non-God's words. It's a test. His word is tested and tried in a furnace seven times. Trust His word. Don't trust other words. And if you do trust other words, look at what happens to you. Verse 4. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him. And you shall keep His commandments. In other words, listen to His voice. Serve Him and cling to Him. He's given you a sufficient word. And even this word, which isn't all of our Bibles because it was written to these specific people, they even at that time had a sufficient word for them. They had it. How much more do we who have the complete and final revelation of God? He says, verse 5, But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. You say, that's serious. Yes, it is. Because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from among you. Very serious. Look at chapter 18. Look at chapter 18, verse 5. The Lord your God has chosen Him and His sons from all your tribes to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. And what does He say? Verse 15. 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. It shall come about that who Whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall, what? Die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And this is, this is absolutely serious stuff when somebody tries to add to God's words or takes away from God's word. Look at Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 28. This is just to arm you with what the Word of God says about itself and those who claim to represent Him. You remember in Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 15, there was a certain prophet. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. Now somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute. You've got one guy, Hananiah, who is said to be not sent. But you have Jeremiah who is said to be sent. So who do we believe? Who's telling us the truth? Can you see the confusion on the part of the people? Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a what? A lie. Therefore says the Lord, Behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. That's how you know he's dead. Jeremiah lived on. Look at chapter 29, verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Koaliah, and concerning Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying to you falsely in my name. This is another false prophecy trying to add to God's word. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will slay them before our eyes. That's another way you can know. It's another way. Look at verse 31. Send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah, the Nehalamite, because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, although I did not send him, and he has made you trust in a lie. Therefore says the Lord, Behold, I am about to punish Shemaiah the Nehelamite and his descendants. He will not have anyone living among this people, and he will not see the good that I am about to do to my people, declares the Lord, because he has preached rebellion against the Lord. You say, how do I know? How do I know today? How true are they to this word? That's it. We have the completed word, the final canon. How do we know? We know it from, from this word. How do they treat the scriptures? You remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, when he says about himself and his other associates, he says, here's what I want. I want you to be on the lookout for those, unlike us, who exceed that which is written. You see again, adding to the word. 
He says, we have taught ourselves, and this is our standard, that we will not exceed that which is written. We're not going to go beyond Scripture. This is so important. Look at Revelation 22. This is, this is from Deuteronomy 4 all the way to Revelation 22. This very serious warning. Look at verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. That's pretty serious. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Wow. From Deuteronomy 4 to Revelation 22, and I've only given you a few. You may have thought I gave you a lot, but I've only given you a few. Don't add to God's words. Don't be a prophet who doesn't speak in the name of the Lord. Don't violate the prophecy of the book of Revelation and everything in between. This is a serious command. I've even heard some say to some in these various movements who appear to be adding to the Word of God, so are you saying we need to rip off the back cover of our Bible and for you to add to Revelation 22? Very serious thing. And there are serious consequences. Look at the latter part of verse 6 of Proverbs 30. Or He will reprove you and you will be proved what? A liar. A person would be considered a liar if they attempted to add to the very words of God. That's who they are. You say, well, who would be tempted to do such a thing? Somebody who believes that they need something other than the revelation of God's Word. That's who. And you know what? They're out there in droves. They are out there purveying their doctrine. That's who they are. Jesus said, Matthew 4, 4, tempted by Satan, what a great pattern for us as believers. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's right. Ask yourself the question, am I proving the tested word of God or am I being reproved because I don't really believe it's sufficient? You see, God's Word is either being proven over and over again in your life or you are being reproved because you lie because you don't avail yourself of this sufficient truth. And you know, that can be someone who even says theoretically, no, I believe the Word of God. I believe it's sufficient. I believe it's a guide to life. I believe it's the Word of God. I believe the Bible has come to us from God. I believe it is final. I believe it is complete. I believe the canon of Scripture is now so final that it is to be added to none. Not at all. But here's my one problem. I just don't look at it much. I just don't read it a lot. I just don't go to it as my source of life. Now here's where the preacher starts to go to meddling. Because you ask yourself the question, if Augur says, even autobiographically, I'm more stupid than any man if I think I can human reasoning, human labor, find my way to God. It's not so. It's the Word of God. It's special revelation. 
and I'm not going to add to it, and I'm not going to take away from it, because if I do, I'm going to be reproved, I'm going to be found out to be a liar. What's the only right conclusion from that? It's to read it. It's to study it. It's to know it, because then when you know it, you know God. And if someone says, I checked all the boxes of what you said, and I believe all of it, I just don't handle it. I just don't avail myself of it. I just don't read it. You say, well, I, I, I do, but it's on Sunday morning when you preach to us. Or, I do when I get in a jam. Or, I read that one verse a day to keep the devil away. Or, I'm not talking about any of those things. Here's what I'm talking about. I love it. I must have it. It is my life. It's my joy. I can't get enough of it. I wouldn't want to be doing other things when I knew discretionarily that I could be reading it. That I could be knowing the God of it. Is that your heart? Is that where you're coming from? Is that the true nature of your very panting after God's Word? I trust that it is. I trust that the Bible Church of Little Rock is not just a name to you, but it stands for something that you are. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, please forgive us that we don't, as steps in our lives, functionally see the significance of Your Word. Oh Lord, we believe it's trustworthy. We, we believe that You would protect us from the storms and the temptations of life. We, we believe that. We believe that the Bible is sufficient. We, we would affirm that it's a reliable guide to each and every part of my life. I would say that I take it seriously, this command not to add to God's Word. I don't want to be reproved and be found out to be a liar because I've looked at other means and ways of trying to live my life. But could it be, Lord, that at this time I may be chastised? Precisely because I'm not functionally, daily trusting in Your Word and daily, functionally living as though Your Word is my sufficient guide. Oh, Father, I confess my lack of reading, studying, relying upon Your sufficient, trustworthy Word. Oh, I'd ask that You would give me a love for Your Word, which is able to protect me from all harm, and that I would rejoice that You've given me all the wisdom that I would ever need. Oh, Father, may I confess and forsake all wrong attitudes, even about Your powerful Word, let me bring it from the shelf to my heart.
Let me honor it. Because you have given it to us. Lord, there may be those here today who would confess very readily that they don't love your word because they don't know you. And maybe today that they've discovered that knowing you means knowing your word, knowing your person. And that they've been on a journey through their own human reasoning. They've recognized how futile and how much of a failure it is. Oh, I pray that they would turn from that futility and to see this worthy word as their only guide, including what it says about Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, turning from their sin and embracing Christ as Lord. And then beginning the journey, even as was said to us in the testimonies, beginning the journey of being transformed into a lover of your truth and a pursuer of your truth and a defender and proclaimer of your truth. May it be so, so that you would see us as obedient slaves, hungering and thirsting, panting as the deer pants for the water brooks, our soul panting after you and your precious word. In Jesus' name, amen.